0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, or your scripture journals, I want to invite you to open with me to the Gospel of Luke and chapter 1. Luke and chapter 1. We are uh, continuing our new study through the Gospel of Luke that we started last week. Last week we just looked at the prologue in verses uh, 1 through 4, and so today we're going to look at verses 5 through 25, okay? Since this is a narrative, uh, we take these in. Larger chunks, typically. And so we continue to the birth narrative of Jesus in this Advent season. So Luke and 1, verses 5 through 25. If you got it, say, I got it. All right, let's read this together. The Gospel of Luke and chapter 1, starting in verse 5. God's Word says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and they were advanced in years. Now, while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, And there appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. And He must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in your time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service was ended, he went home. After these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked upon me to take away my reproach among people. Amen. It's God's Word. May God write eternal truths on all of our hearts. (coughs) Well, Anyone uh, who knows me well knows something that I don't like is traveling. Isn't that true, Daniel? (laughs) He's not paying attention to me. (laughs) Many of you like traveling, yes? So weird. Me, if it's over a 30-minute drive, I'm not trying to do it, Okay, if I can help it. Traveling great distances is something I've done before, of course, um, going to places like Israel and Iraq and throughout much of the US. But for me to go far, it really has to be something. You know what I mean? It really has to be something worth my while. Now, a place I would be willing to travel a long distance is Ireland, and I think that this would be a worthwhile place for me to endure being cramped on an airplane for. And besides taking in the beautiful landscapes, I'd be sure to visit Trinity College while I was there. Why? Because it houses one of the, one of the medieval Europe's greatest treasures, called the Book of Kells. Does anybody know of the Book of Kells? A couple? One? okay. The Book of Kells is a book that contains the four Gospels in Latin, okay? But every page features unique, intricate artwork that was painstakingly drawn by 9th century monks in a monastery off an island in Scotland. And An article on the BBC website says this, Written on vellum, it is estimated that the skins of 185 calves were needed for the project. Practically all of the 680 pages are decorated in some way or another. On some pages, every corner is filled with the most detailed and beautiful Celtic designs. It's truly a remarkable piece. One 12th century writer said the artwork in the book was so beautiful that you might say that all of this was the work of an angel and not a man. And at Trinity College, they display a new page, two new pages every day. So you could go back for years and not see the same thing twice. And and let's say I made the trip to this incredible treasure. Okay. Say I, I made my way to Trinity College and I excitedly hurried to see the book of Kells. Well, I couldn't just walk directly to it and then see it and leave. It's not possible. See, the people who arranged the exhibit designed it in such a way that does not allow the public to see the gospel straight away. Rather, they lead you first to several other old books which prepare you step by step for the great treasure itself. They believe it's too wonderful to be taken in right away. You've you got to be prepared for it. N.T. Wright says, By the time you reach the heart of the exhibition, you've already thought your way back to the world of early Celtic Christianity, to the monks who spent years of their lives painstakingly copying out parts of the Bible and lavishly decorating it. You are now ready to appreciate it properly. If you wanted to read the story of the birth of Christ... There are only two places in the New Testament you could go for that narrative. Matthew and Luke. Matthew takes you directly to the treasure with the announcement and the birth of Christ. Luke, however, he does things a little differently, doesn't he? He doesn't want to take you directly to the treasure. Instead, he does what the exhibitors at Trinity College do. He takes you on a journey to prepare you for the treasure that is the breaking in of God incarnate into human history. He must prepare us. The treasure is too good to go to straight away. We must be ready. And so our author Luke takes us first to the announcement of Jesus' forerunner, John, and only then to preparations and announcements of Jesus' birth, and only later in the narrative to Jesus' birth itself. (coughs) Like a masterful storyteller, Luke is building up anticipation for what is to come, He is preparing our hearts and our minds, and that's what we see in our text this morning. But he is doing more, you understand, than telling us a story. He's setting us up for what we can expect when God himself condescends to take on flesh and remake the world. It is a story, yes, but it is the story of the most earth-shattering event in history. So in our time together, let's simply, let's just walk through this text, okay, and we'll observe some application points along the way. okay. So after the prologue, Luke sets these events in real history in verse 5. You see that? Remember what we talked about last week? Luke is telling us that what he is reporting is docu- in this document is true history. Okay, This is no mere story. This is no assertion of vague events. This is not propaganda made up by a delusional writer. These things happened in real history and can be attested to. Well, like you think of fairy tales, and how do fairy tales open? Once upon a time. So if you asked, when did this happen? The answer is, they happened once at some time, right? They aren't set in real history because they're made up. Or, of course, because I'm a nerd, before the classic crawl that starts most Star Wars movies, it says, a long time ago, in a galaxy far, far away. When did this happen? A long time ago. How long ago? Who knows? Where was it? Far, far away, right? That tells us nothing because it's fake. Luke says these things happen and you can locate them in real history. He says these things happen in the days of Herod, who was king of Judea and ruled from 37 to 4 BC, okay? So this happened, we we drop in towards the end of Herod's rule, and Herod was a brutal ruler, having killed one of his wives and three of his sons. And he would later brutally, you know this, he'd brutally murder countless infants, right, off the off chance that one of them was a future king who would threaten his rule, which is why, of course, Jesus' parents have to take him to Egypt for a time. (coughs) But I want you to know, look again at verse 5. How much information does Luke give us about Herod? How much? What's he tell us about Herod? Nothing, right? Nothing. But what does he follow this with? Don't miss this, okay? A lengthy story about a seemingly insignificant priest and his wife. And now, what he does? This tells us something about what we can expect from this gospel. Luke has a habit of de-emphasizing the powerful and the wealthy. He has very little interest in them, and he'll show repeatedly the danger of wealth and how this coming Messiah's kingdom flips earthly kingdom structures of power dynamics on their heads. This God does not tend to work primarily through those you would expect, you see, but through ordinary people like Zechariah and Elizabeth. Luke will show us That the gospel of Christ's kingdom works out for the seemingly insignificant and the outcast and the marginalized and the weak. The strong, the powerful, the important. They need to watch out (laughs) because the reckoning of God is coming unless they humble themselves and get low. Because this kingdom only works out for those who acknowledge their low state before this glorious king. As Robert Farrar Capone once said, grace doesn't sell, you could hardly give it away, because it only works for losers, and no one wants to stand in their line. So Luke introduces us to this couple, Zachariah, who is a priest, not the high priest, okay? He's a priest, he's just a priest, out of 18,000 priests, and he's married to Elizabeth, who is also from priestly blood, because she's a descendant of Aaron. We're also told that Elizabeth and Zachariah were, what, both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. What's this mean? It doesn't mean they were sinless. It means they responded to the grace of God by conforming their lives to God's Word. That's what it means. They faithfully and consistently obeyed God. And this posture of responding to God's grace with obedience and faithfulness is, again, another theme that we will see throughout Luke's Gospel. And uh, we can see the, a couple application points already, can't we? <coughs> that God works through ordinary people, and that true reception of the grace of God is pursuit of God's will and commands. Not perfection, you understand, but a genuine pursuit of obedience because you see the glory of God and been amazed by his grace and uh, towards you, a- an undeserving sinner. If you feel like you're just an ordinary ragamuffin, do any of you guys feel like that? then you're qualified to be used mightily by God. Do you see? (laughs) Through your ordinary obedience, ordinary everyday obedience. But if you think you're super dope and important and powerful, you are ironically underqualified and must humble yourself first. Only then will God use you in a big way. Friend, never never underestimate the way God can use your ordinary faithfulness of, of just a regular person like you. Never underestimate that. Luke will show us time and again that God delights to do such things. But then Luke tells us another detail about the lives of this couple in verse 7, doesn't he? They had no child because Elizabeth was barren. And since she was advanced in years, there was seemingly no hope that they would ever have a child. Now we must see there's a highly intentional nature of the way that Luke orders things here. Did you see it? He's sure to tell us in verse 6 that Elizabeth and Zacharias are righteous before God, right? When it says before God, it means in God's estimation. And only then does he tell us they can't conceive. This is because there was a common belief in this context that to be barren meant that one was under the judgment of God. As if an inability to conceive was a result of sin. Luke is showing us by the way he orders these things, that this is absolutely not the case, right? He is saying that there is absolutely no correlation here between their barrenness and their deeds. And there's another lesson here for us, isn't there? See, Zechariah and Elizabeth did not let their circumstances affect how they saw and worshipped God, did they? Did they let their circumstances of not being able to conceive affect how they saw and worshipped God? Of course not. Clearly, they wanted a child. But God's timing did not match up with theirs, (laughs) something that we will learn shortly, right? But they went through hardship. Elizabeth, according to verse 25, felt the reproach and the judging looks and the harsh whispers from people for not being able to conceive. And Zechariah was a priest who served at the temple, and yet God seemingly didn't answer his prayers for a child. Yet, don't you see that this did not make them bitter or demotivate them from living a life of obedience? They still served God and loved God and pursued His commandments. This is a choice we must all make at some point or another in our lives. Will we serve God for God's sake? When when hardship comes, will we allow it to make us better or worse? Will they drive us closer to God or away from Him in bitterness? You know, in the movie, I've used this reference before, but in the movie Superman 3 starring Christopher Reeve, you remember this one? There's a scene where he crushes a piece of coal, and he opens his hand and it becomes a diamond. And this led, of course, countless people to believe that that's how diamonds were made, from coal. Well, they aren't, all right? But coal and diamonds are made both from the same element, carbon. And both are made from being put under enormous pressure. The difference is with diamonds, impurities are kept out, while with coal, you introduce impurities into the process. So both diamonds and coal are made from the same basic elements. Both are exposed to immense pressure. But one is ugly and one is beautiful, depending on the amounts of impurities that are introduced. And the same thing is true with trials and the pains of life, or when things don't go the way we expect, or at least not on the timing or way we would prefer. Either you could use the hardship to drive you to Christ and continue to follow him in obedience and let the trials produce in you something beautiful or you could waste your trials and you could become cynical and bitter and angry and you won't end up with a diamond, you'll end up with something far uglier. Trials will either make you or break you, but they won't let you leave the same. For Elizabeth and Zachariah, this lifelong trial left them better. Yes? Not worse, because they chose to worship and pursue obedience regardless of what life threw at them. They loved God for God. Not for what he could provide for them. They loved him and served him because he's beautiful, not because he's useful. And there's a world of difference between those two postures, isn't there? This begs the question, friend, will you serve God anyway if things don't go your way? For this couple, the answer was clearly what? Yes. What about you? Do you love God for God or only for the stuff he could give or provide you? Well, we're then told that Zechariah was serving as a priest of the temple, which priests would do, for two one-week periods each year. They were like National Guard, all right, excluding festivals. And on one such occasion, the lot happened to fall to him, right, to enter the temple and burn incense. Now, this is something (coughs) that priests could only do once in their lifetime, burn incense in the temple. And you could never do it again. And some never got to do it at all. Then we see the reason why the lot happened to fall to Zechariah, right? As he's burning incense, an angel shows up on the right side of the altar, which is the side of favor, of course, which is why we see that Christ is at the right hand of the Father as he is exalted after the ascension. So Zechariah is doing his duty, and the angel Gabriel shows up. Now, Luke says Zechariah was troubled. Do you see it? And fear fell upon him. Now, understand this is not a little fear. He is in real terror, all right, because angels are scary, Did you know that? They don't look like chubby babies or simply people with two wings. Like out here in this nativity, you know, there's that angel next to Northern European baby Jesus, right? And that just has a person with two wings, right? When people in the Bible see an angel, they're more inclined to need a change of pants than they are to say, "Ah, how cute, right? Thomas Schreiner says when human beings encounter the supernatural, they're struck with fear, sensing their finitude, their smallness, their status as creatures, and doubtless, their sinfulness as well. And this is why most encounters in the Bible of people seeing and meeting with an angel include the first words from the angel, what? Don't be afraid, right? That's what the very first words out of Gabriel's mouth are in verse 13, right? Do not be afraid. Why would angels say that as their first words, right? Because the impulse when you see one is what? To be afraid. (coughs) Gabriel will tell Zechariah in verse 19 that he stands in the presence of God and is thus God's messenger. That's literally what the word angel means. This means that what Gabriel says is not of his own accord, right? He only says and does what who tells him to say and do? God. Therefore, what are the first words from God? This is significant. What are the first words from God in the gospel of Luke? Luke. Fear not. Yes? Or do not be afraid. Is that significant? It must be. Luke means to tell us and show us that no matter how dark and bleak things seem to be, the light has dawned in the person of Jesus and there's no need to fear. Do you see? I mean, this is a, when you think about the context here, this is a dark, dark, Time for Zechariah and the people of Israel. As a nation, they haven't heard from God in 400 years. And they're currently being occupied by a pagan empire that that have zero hope in overcoming. They can't uprise and overthrow this power. These things are happening in the days of Herod, who is an evil puppet of that foreign occupying power. On top of that, Zechariah, he's a priest in the midst of all of this. And he lives in obedience to God. And yet, him and his equally pious wife are childless. And it doesn't seem to matter how much they want a child. Things are dark here. But with the megaphone, Luke's gospel is telling them and us, fear not, for the light is coming, has come, and will come again to make everything right. It's telling us no matter how things seem, God still sovereignly rules and has a plan to make every sad thing come untrue. Isn't that good news? You know, Many years ago, Tim Keller said he saw an ad in the New York Times that said this. The meaning of Christmas is that love will triumph and that we will be able to put together a world of unity and peace. That's what it said the, the, the story of Christmas is. In other words, we have the light within us, and so we are the ones who could dispel the darkness of the world. We could overcome poverty injustice, violence, and evil. If we work together, we can create a world of unity and peace. Can we? I mean, the last hundred years have been the most technologically advanced century in human history, yet there is still poverty, injustice, and violence, and evil. Further, is the message of Christmas really that we can bring peace and unity (laughs) by our own might? Keller says this, actually, it's the exact opposite. Humanity cannot save itself. The, the message of Christianity is instead, things are really this bad, and we can't save ourselves or heal ourselves. Things really are this dark. Nevertheless, there is hope. There is light outside of this world, and Jesus has brought that light to save us. Indeed, he is the light. And there is there, more in this exchange that points us to this. So said, Gabriel says... Your prayers have been heard, and your wife will bear you a son, and you shall call him John, and you will have joy and gladness. And look what it says next. And many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord. Then you jump down to the end of verse 17. He says, he will make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Do you see what's going on here? This is incredible. This is a message of cosmic significance that involves the simple personal story of a single couple. Do you guys see that? David Garland says, The barrenness of this righteous couple is not simply a private misfortune, but symbolizes that Israel is under a curse worse than Herod's tyranny and Rome's lordship and is in need of deliverance and rescue. Elizabeth and Zechariah represent God's people seemingly without hope for the future. Elizabeth's disgrace is symptomatic of Israel's disgrace of spiritual barrenness. It explains why the miraculous birth of John does not simply bring private joy to a bereft couple, but promises to be good news for a comfortless nation. See, Zechariah will not only rejoice because he is finally becoming a father, but also at what the mission of his son will be, which is a sign that salvation is near for Israel. Indeed, the whole world. They have been waiting all these years, and it must have seemed like it would never happen, but they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed, and God heard their prayers, verse 13, and his plan of salvation is finally coming to fruition. As Zechariah and Elizabeth have waited for a child, so Israel has waited for the Messiah, do you see? To come and bring salvation to the world, and Gabriel is announcing the good news of his coming. But before the Messiah comes, Zechariah's son will pave the way in some respects, How? It tells us, right? He'll be full of the Holy Spirit from the womb. The only person besides Jesus that the New Testament says this of. And he will, verse 16, (coughs) turn many of the children of Israel to their God. Verse 17, and he will go before him in the spirit of Elijah and turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. Gabriel tells Zechariah that John's prophetic mission will have three main descriptions. Did you see them? One, he'll go before the Lord. Two, he'll turn people back to the Lord's way, i.e., from disobedience to righteousness. And three, preparing the people for the Lord's coming. Joel Green says this on John's ministry, he says, Gabriel's sketch of John's vocation is fundamentally theocentric. John will turn Israel to its Lord. John will go before him, that is, the Lord. And so the people will be prepared for the advent of, guess what, the Lord. (laughs) This is a reminder that this is God's story. At this juncture, the solution to the priestly couple's childlessness has been caught up in the larger need of Israel for the reign of its God. We should see here something we noted last week in regards to God's story and our story. This narrative in 1, 5 through 25 with Zechariah and Elizabeth and John illustrates that point. God's story is the primary focus here. Do you see that? This is about the fullness of time coming on God's time, not man's. Not Israel's and not Zachariah's. God's salvation is coming in his way, but it inextricably involves real people. Do you see? God does not need humans, does he? Of course not. But he includes them because he loves them. His story is coming to pass, but even though it involves the renovation of the whole entire universe... He still hears the prayer of this couple who want a child. And he brings them in. And he answers them and in that answer will be the one who will preach necessary repentance before the king coming of the king. And what that forerunner will do is point to God and his story, not his own. Do you see how all this fits together? We need to see that this story that seems somewhat disconnected from our own lives is in fact teaching us some profound lessons. God means for you to be brought into his story. Do you know that? Do you know that God means to bring you into his story? And and he means to remake the world, and he means to use ordinary obedience to do it. But further, he also does not always work on our schedules. Did you know that? nor in our ways, nor in ways we might expect. In fact, the way before us might be painful, and our obedience might not produce the kinds of results we want when we want them, but that is no cause to doubt God's timing or purposes. Ours is faithfulness. His is the results. The way that he sees fit. (coughs) This also shows us that God does, in fact, hear our prayers. Yes? And simply because they're not answered the way we want or in the timing we want does not mean he is far away or uncaring. Israel's not heard a new revelation from God in 400 years. But he planned to work in this time. Right? To bring about his plan all along. Zechariah and Elizabeth likely gave up the idea that they would have a child because they are literally too old to conceive. And yet what happens? God does far more than they would have asked or expected. So it will be the coming of Messiah, won't it? One of the most profound scenes, I think, in the Fellowship of the Ring, both the book and the movie, is when the hero Frodo is speaking with the wizard Gandalf. And Frodo is essentially lamenting his place in all of the story. It's too hard, right? The path is too fraught with danger. Why did he have to be the one to endure this and take on this task. He says, I wish it not, need not happen in my time. And so Gandalf says, so do I. And so do all who live to see such time, but that is not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time that is given to us. Gandalf agrees, I wish it hadn't happened during this time either. But he has the perspective to say, even if we don't like the timing of things and the events happening the way they do, we still have a choice, don't we? Is that the case for us? There will surely be things that happen in our lives. My breaking news here that we wished would have gone differently. Right? Or happened in our preferred timing, in our preferred way. But God is sovereign. In our finite state, we are creatures, He's creator. Ours is not to direct nor dictate. Ours is to see that God is at work in the world, that his Messiah has come, that he plans to remake all things and to join in on that gracious work and pursue faithfulness and obey. That's what Zechariah and Elizabeth did. That's what their son John is going to do. And all of that happened in ways no one expected. But it worked out for their good and God's glory because not only is he sovereign, not only do things. Get this, okay? Not only is he sovereign, not only do all things work out according to his meticulous providence, but he is good. And he cares about real people. Like an elderly priest and his wife. And people like you. Do you see? So see, see him for who he is and pursue ordinary faithfulness and trust him with the results. So how does Zechariah respond to the fact that an angel appeared before him? What does he do when the angel not only appeared before him, but knew intimately the plight of the childlessness of he and his wife have suffered? He did what any rational person would do, right? He asked for a sign. Doesn't he? So so before we get too far into thinking Zachariah is like the premier model of faith, he clutches at straws, okay? And he doubts God's proclamation to him through Gabriel. You know, typically we don't want to laugh at the Bible, but here's some comedy and irony, all right? a man has met with an angel of the Lord who has given him the best news possible, right? And remember, Zechariah just happens to be at the altar of incense for the first time in his life, and instead of taking an appearance of an angel as the sign, he asks for another one. Like, Gabriel shows up out of nowhere, and he knows all about you, And he's giving you this great news that you'll finally have a child, and he'll be the forerunner of the Messiah. And Zechariah's like, yes, but can I have a sign?" As we see next week, and this is an interesting thing that Luke does, there's a difference between Zechariah asking, how shall I know this, and Mary's, how can this be? One's right and one's wrong, and it's not the religious, pious fella, it's the teenage girl, Right? He's questioning God's ability to make this happen. Mary is genuinely curious. Zechariah wanted a sign because of his unbelief. Mary doesn't ask for a sign, but she gets one anyway. Zechariah wants confirmation that Gabriel is telling the truth. But he'll be disciplined for it, won't he? As we'll see in a moment. And I wonder if you find Zechariah's doubt here somewhat surprising. Do you think it's strange that Zechariah is doubting? You know, think about it. Not only is there an angel standing in front of him speaking, which should be enough to be believed. But our man is a priest, (laughs) right? He knows his Bible. He knows very well stories of infertility that the Lord turns to surprising pregnancies. Like he knows the story of Abraham and Sarah, (laughs) whose situation was eerily similar to theirs. Zechariah knows that God could do this. He knows that... To give a miraculous pregnancy is really just child's play, pun intended, for a God who could speak and create galaxies and who's done it time and again in the past. But he doubts God's word here, doesn't he? Perhaps a lesson we need to take from this is that we should take God at his word. We should take God at his word. When God says something, you think he means it? God does not trifle with empty words or trite statements. What God says in his word can be trusted, and for us, the clay. We must not be the ones who sit in judgment of the potter and his word, nor try to make it conform to our opinions and preferences. We must submit to it as coming from God as a gift of his grace and obey it. We can step out in faith based on who God has shown us he is through the scriptures. God may not have sent you an angel while you were in a temple, but he sent you a Messiah who has lived and died and rose again for your sake and God's glory. Can he not be trusted? I mean, this whole section is full of expectations of obedience, isn't it? Zachariah and Elizabeth are obedient even when life is not gone exactly according to plan. Gabriel announces that they will have a son who will forerun the Messiah, and what will his task be? It will be to call a disobedient nation to become obedient and to repent of their sins because the kingdom of God is at hand. He will give them an opportunity to get ready for the long-awaited king and so they have a chance to turn from their wicked ways and embrace the end of the age that's dawning in the light. Then here we have Gabriel calling Zachariah to simply take God at his word. Repentance and faithfulness in response to God's gracious offer permeate this section and this book. But since we are on the other side of the incarnation of Christ, we don't see John preparing the way for us because the light has come, right? And he has spoken, and he has died in your place, and he has roses for his fruits, and he has ascended, and he will, in fact, return. So when is the time for repentance? It is now. Now is the time for repentance. Now is the time to see the truth and beauty of the gospel, and now is the time to receive the king, submit to him, and obey his word. If all of this is true and we believe it's true, then shouldn't it completely change how we live? Do you think? This earth-shattering gospel, this text is the proclamation that God both works through the lives of real people and that the Savior of the world has come. And that savior of the world is God in flesh. God in flesh has landed and suffered and died and experienced loss on a scale that none of us will ever experience so that he could get to us. But not so that we can remain the same. And just to be the same as people who don't know him at all. But to live as people who have experienced the hurricane that is the Jesus of the gospel and thus take him at his word. Ours is not to negotiate with what he said and constantly say, did he really mean this? As if we could presume to sit in judgment of the word. Ours is to bow knee and say, command me, my Lord. You know, David Platt, he tells of a time he received an invitation to the White House. And when he opened the letter, he wondered if it was a joke, right? That someone was playing on him. But it turned out to be authentic. And this is what he says. He says, The invitation was for the following week, and though my schedule was pretty full, I dropped everything I had on that day in order to be at that appointment. I quickly booked flights to Washington, D.C., and made sure that I was there in plenty of time to meet the president. I was honored to have been invited by him, and I changed everything around to respond to this invitation. Then he continues, if this is my reaction, and I'm guessing yours might be similar, to a world leader of one country a man who is in power for four, maybe eight years, then how much more does an invitation from the everlasting, ever-reigning God of the entire universe in flesh alter everything in our lives? Do we realize the weight, he says, of the one who has invited us to follow him? He is worthy of more than church attendance and casual association. He is worthy of total abandonment and supreme adoration. Should that not be our reaction? We should be wrecked constantly by the truths of the gospel and respond by taking God at his word. Something Zachariah failed to do in this interaction with Gabriel. So Gabriel responds to this request for a sign by by saying, I am Gabriel, (coughs) I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And this is this is good news, right? This is good news that he brings. And he does so with the authority of the Lord. So Gabriel says in essence, you want a sign? I'll give you a sign. And he makes Zechariah mute and deaf for the length of his wife's pregnancy. Well, we know he's deaf, by the way, because verse 62 says that when John was born, people had to make signs to him. If he was mute, he could still hear people speak, right? No signs necessary. So God strikes him both deaf and mute because he doubted the word from the Lord given to Gabriel. Now, we may see this response from Gabriel and think it's a bit harsh. Do you guys think it's a bit harsh? Nobody will say yes because they know that's a setup. <laughs> but deaf and mute for nine months? I mean, that's a lot. All because he wanted a sign? That's a little bit much. You know, the pain of this was brought home to me. I was reading Russ Ramsey's book on Advent. This is what he said. He said, Zachariah would be plunged into a world of silence, unable to speak, where he would remain until the birth of his promised child. No whispering to the baby in Elizabeth's growing belly. No telling his neighbors about the son he had been waiting for his entire life. Only silence. Nine months of it. There's no denying the agony of that, right? Right? But perhaps we miss that this discipline from the Lord is also a grace, a gift. For one, let's not forget that Zachariah's reaction response does not in any way nullify the promise, does it? The Lord did not say, well, Zacharias, Zach, as you do not believe it, your wife Elizabeth shall not have a son. There shall be a John born, but it will not come from your house. He doesn't say that. The promise still stands. Is that not a grace of God? See, like we talked about last week, God's plan will not be thwarted. God will have his way, but he delights to work through people. Even so, people are weak and sinful, but not even that can stop God's plan from going forth. Even still, Zechariah is to learn a lesson about doubting the truth of God. Consider that this discipline could have been much harsher, couldn't it? Zechariah is getting much more than he deserves. God doesn't owe him a single thing, but he delights in blessing people above what they can ask or think, supremely seen in the gospel itself. But consider that God could have made him mute and deaf for the rest of his life. Couldn't he? Easy. Or a or hundred other different disciplines. But God is gracious, and he is patient, and he gives abundantly, but he also disciplines those he loves. You see, this is not punishment, it's discipline. Discipline. Zechariah is meant to learn something through this trial. And he would have plenty of time of quiet contemplation, right? To see what the Lord means to teach him through this. And shouldn't we see the same lesson, do you think? As we said earlier, the fact that Zechariah and Elizabeth grow old without children was clearly not a punishment from the Lord for some kind of sin, since Luke is sure to tell us of the up, their uprightness. <laughs> Nor when we go through our trials or pains of life, should we assume that the reason they are happening is because God is mad at us? Now hear me, Christian, okay? If you're a Christian, God will not punish you in this life or the next. Do you know that? You know why? Because Jesus has absorbed fully and finally the punishment you deserve. However, there will be times in our lives that God will allow us to go through hardship in order that we may learn and grow. You know this? C.S. Lewis once said, pain insists upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Trials are God trying to get your attention so we can use them to grow in him. Do you see? See, what we typically do when we go through something hard is ask, why me? You ever asked that? I bet you have. What did I do to deserve this? And you know, such lamenting is not in itself bad or sinful. The Psalms show us that they are natural impulses. But what we must do in hardship, and this is key, in our trials is ask over and over again what God means to teach us through them. He may indeed be allowing us to suffer in order to discipline us for some ongoing and unrepentant sin. This is not punishment. This is a megaphone from the Lord to get your attention. What a waste if we missed what he was trying to teach us. Like we said earlier, some people waste their trials by becoming bitter and cynical and learn nothing. They become worse and not better. We go waste the hardships in our lives by not working to see what God means to teach us through them. A name that I kept thinking of as I was thinking through this all week was someone I would consider a hero of the faith, and that is Johnny Erickson Tata. Do you guys know her? <laughs> when she was 18, she was paralyzed from the shoulders down. 18 in a diving accident. And since then, apart from her life crashing down from paralysis, she's also battled cancer and a, a numerous other different things. And I look at her and her witness and her faithfulness, and I think, why her? You know what I mean? Like, she's so faithful, and she's such a model of the love of Christ. Like, why must she keep enduring hardships? And, but she's found the answer. Listen to what she says. She said, I really don't mind the inconvenience of being paralyzed, and if my faithfulness to God while in this wheelchair will bring glory to him. Isn't that amazing? Then she says, when God brings suffering into your life as a Christian, be it mild or drastic, he is forcing you to decide on issues you have been avoiding. He is pressing you to ask yourself some questions. Am I going to continue trying to live in two worlds, obeying Christ and my own sinful desire? Or am I going to refuse to worry? Am I going to be grateful in trials? Am I going to abandon my sin? In short, am I going to be like Christ? He provides in suffering, but the choice is ours. She continues. But today as I look back, I'm convinced that the whole ordeal of my paralysis was inspired by his love. I wasn't a rat in a maze. I wasn't the brunt of some cruel divine joke. God had reasons behind my suffering, and learning some of them has made all the difference in the world. Friend, maybe God is taking you through a trial right now. How are you responding? Is it making you better or worse? Have you stopped long enough to ask God what he means for you to learn? Maybe you're not going through something right now, but you will eventually, unfortunately. And when you do, remember the lessons you've learned here, don't waste your trial. Zachariah is disciplined because God loves him. This is a grace from God, and even in the discipline, God means to continue to bless him, bring him the child he's been waiting for, and lead into the light of the world dawning on the darkness. Zechariah leaves the temple, right? The people are waiting patiently because this has taken far longer than it should have. And Zechariah signs to them what had happened. You ever think about that? I'm not sure. How you signed the people that you just encountered an angel of the Lord in the temple who told you that your barren wife will have a forerunner of the Messiah and you doubted it, so you're rendered mute and deaf. But Zechariah apparently did. I would love after service in the four years, show me what that would look like if you have an interpretation, all right, how you would sign that. The section closes out by Luke telling us they did, in fact, conceive. Can you imagine? God did what he said he would do. And Elizabeth hid herself for five months. Now, why? We're not told. But she beautifully closes this section with a praise to God by saying, the Lord has done for me, this is verse 25, the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among people. You might imagine what it would have been like for Elizabeth to be barren in that culture that assumed that childlessness was a result of sin. She felt shame. She felt scorn. She felt the judgments of others not just from villagers and strangers, but from family and friends as well. But now something beyond her wildest dreams has happened. Not only will she have the son she thought she never would, her son would be a fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecy and be the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah. And the shame that she had felt had been taken away by God in his timing and his providence. When Elizabeth's son grows up, and fulfills his role as forerunner of Jesus, he will say to the people, repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. And this is the same message that Jesus will preach and the same message we ought to preach and heed ourselves. But the turning of reproach to rejoicing is exactly what the gospel proclaims, is it not? Our reproach was not before people but before God himself. But at just the right time, at precisely the time he intended, God came to take on the reproach we deserve. So that we could be reconciled to him and go on uh, living a life of rejoicing, even when it's hard. Why? Because the light has dawned, hope's messenger has infiltrated the castle of doom. And because of Jesus, the light we have, the hope we have can never be taken away he has endured the punishment we deserve fully and finally, and so we rejoice. Like Elizabeth, you could say, God looked on me and took away my reproach. Because make no mistake, God is looking at you, and God is hearing you, and God cares about you. This is what the story of Christmas tells us, isn't it? It tells us that God has heard the pleas of people. He's seen the plight of fallen man, and rather than being content to crush us, he has sent his Son in the flesh to rescue us, to reconcile us to him. And he himself is our sign that God is faithful and loving and wise and infinitely merciful. He has looked upon us, and he has taken away our reproach, not just among people, but by bridging the gap between him and us. Is that good news? Allow me to quote NT Wright once more, and then we'll pray together. He said of this passage, God regularly works through ordinary people doing what they normally do. With a mixture of half-faith and devotion, are holding themselves ready for whatever God has in mind. The story is about much more than Zachariah's joy at having a son at last or Elizabeth's exaltation and being freed from scorn of mothers in the village. It's about the great fulfillment of God's promises and purposes. But the needs, hopes, and fears of ordinary people are not forgotten in this larger story. Precisely because of who Israel's God is, the God of lavish, self-giving love, as Luke will tell us in so many ways throughout this gospel. When this God acts on the large scale, he takes care of the smaller human concerns as well. The drama, which not take center stage which now takes center stage is truly the story of God the world and every ordinary human being who has ever lived in it